The Tennessee General Assembly's bill filing deadline is over. In a conversation with Commissioner Penny Schwinn about teacher pay raises and ESA taxability. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of February 10th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We later on in this episode have a conversation between Natalie and Jason Gonzalez, our education reporter, uh, with uh, Education Commissioner Penny Schwinn. But before we get to that, uh, we wanted to just look back at at some of the main bills that were filed uh, during this most recent session. Uh, To give an overview, there were about 1,500 bills filed uh, this year, uh, which is actually a little bit down compared to previous years. Uh, overall, the 111th General Assembly had roughly 2,900 bills filed. Uh, that's down compared to the uh, most recent high, which came in the 107th General Assembly when 3,800 bills were filed. Uh, but Natalie, give a quick overview of some of the ones that we thought were notable. Of course, uh, we can't go through all, all of them, but here are a few we found interesting to say the least. Well, maybe they're taking uh, Terry Lynn Weaver's advice because she said in committee the other day that she's tired of the legislature passing bills out the wazoo that they can't enforce. So, you know, maybe they're being more strategic, more succinct uh, in their decisions on which bills to pursue. That I don't think I would agree with the statement on that one. <laughs> so we've seen, um, what are we talking about? The, the weirdest bills or well, strange just bills? Well, w- bills that you wrote about that you thought were Okay, making intrigued. no judgment on, on what these bills are. Um, yeah, let's talk about some of the bills that came up last year. I'm sorry, last week. It feels like a year ago. Um, so some of the ones I, I wrote about were from John Reagan, Representative John Reagan. He had a couple that were noteworthy. The first of which um, is a bill that would would make it a crime, a crime of child abuse to allow um, a child to get uh, hormone therapy for a sex change. Um, or if you have a teenager and you, um, you if you're a doctor and perform the sex change without um, ensuring that the child has three doctor's recommendations, or if you're a parent who somehow can skirt that law, you could also be ch- charged with child abuse. And that's the first time we have seen a bill like that um, being brought. And we, we've seen something similar just passed in the South Dakota House of Representatives. The argument is that children are, are too young to be able to decide if they um, should have a sex change and that we need something on the books that would prevent a doctor who is supportive of that from going ahead and doing it. Of course, Reagan's uh, latest legislation is not isolated. He is sponsored sponsored several uh, children slash transgender community related uh, pieces of legislation in the past. Uh, it seems like only a handful of members really seem keyed in on that issue. Uh, he is one of them. Uh, what's a, another bill that you found uh, somewhat interesting last week? Another bill that I thought was interesting uh, is actually a bill from Democrat John Ray Clemens, but John Reagan has sort of taken it over um, by, by putting an amendment on it that essentially does the opposite of what John Ray was trying to do. But uh, John Ray Clemens was calling it the the anti uh, school lunch shaming bill, um, which basically says schools can't uh, take a child's lunch away after it's already been served if the kid can't pay. Um, the the school can't talk with the child about lunch that it has to to do that with the parents. Um, the school can't you know forbid the student from participating in field trips and school activities or graduation if they have a lunch debt. Um, and and uh, John Reagan. Um, put a put an amendment on it that um, you know says the school can 
keep the the child from participating in activities. If if they have a lunch debt, uh, the school is commanded to tell the parents that the school might call the Department of Children's Services uh, to report them for child abuse and neglect if if they aren't paying the, the child's lunch money. And it also says, and I think this is the, the most interesting and bizarre and talk about provisions that you can't enforce, uh, the school can make a, a teenage student who has a job um, have to use their job money to pay the lunch debt before they can graduate or participate in activities. To say the least, that is an odd one. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, in non-John Reagan legislation news, uh, there was also a bill filed last week from uh, Representative Ron Travis and Senator uh, Richard Briggs to expand Medicaid, heavily relying on Governor Bill Haslam's 2015 failed Insure Tennessee effort. Uh, this would be a significant uphill battle that this legislation faces, uh, but uh, both Briggs and Travis have said that now is the time to do it. Uh, there is just too much that has gone on in recent years, and the feds are still paying a lot of money. Therefore, uh, Tennessee should get in on this finally. Um, that is not the uh, approach that leadership has taken. Uh, it sounds like it's already facing some initial pushback from both Lieutenant Governor uh, Randy McNally and House Speaker Cameron Sexton. Uh, an unrelated bill that is a blast from the past is uh, a second effort at making the whole the Holy Bible this, the official book of Tennessee. Uh, that comes from uh, Mark Pody, Senator Mark Pody, and Representative Jerry Sexton. Uh, that bill uh, was the first year I was here in the legislature, uh, and it was a, a two-year effort. But in the second year, um, Governor Bill Haslam at the time vetoed it. That led to a marathon effort to override the governor's veto. Uh, I think I, it was about two plus hours of debate. It was some of the more, um, let's say, hair pulling because it was just seemingly a circular argument. People were getting up on both sides of the issue, citing Bible verses. And, you know, that was basically the crux of the discussion. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if the same thing happens again this year. Yeah, well, you, you asked Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally what he thought about this bill, and he said? "It's He, he doesn't want it to go to the floor. Uh, he said it's hard for for someone to vote against the Bible. Which it is. That, and he voted against one. the Bible, according to last <laughs> time's effort. Um while a lot has changed, Governor uh, uh, Bill Haslam is no longer there. Governor Bill Lee is in office. Uh, we have a new House Speaker. Beth Harwell opposed uh, the bill last time. Uh, so did Cameron Sexton. So despite opposition from leadership, it wouldn't be shocking if this bill made it to the floor and ultimately to the governor's desk. And nobody knows how uh, Bill Lee would fall on this issue. And, and McNally also said something interesting. He said it, it in a way... I don't remember his exact wording, but he essentially said, in a way, this this cheapens the Bible because we already have um, all of these other uh, state objects, state reptile, yeah, state rock, animals, yeah, um, song. <laughs> so, what what exactly does it accomplish by by naming a state book? We shall see what happens with that legislation. And then, uh, last two things of note, uh, Natalie, you noted that there was a resolution filed from uh, Representative Gloria Johnson that does what? 
Yes, it once again um, calls for the legislature to expel Representative David Byrd, um, who has for uh, nearly a couple years now faced allegations of sexually assaulting teenagers in the 80s. She tried to do this um, back in August ahead of the special session. It was shut down by um, House Republican leadership who um, the new House Speaker Cameron Sexton a couple days before the special session had called for an attorney general opinion. Um, so so Sexton essentially said, there, there's no need for us to take this up now. We have a pending AG opinion request out. Um, that, that opinion came back at the end of the year uh, in which the attorney general is basically um, cautioning the legislature against expelling Byrd for conduct that predates his time in office. Uh, so that was that was a resolution that um, Representative Johnson filed again. Uh, she said that in her conversations with Representative Michael Curcio, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, um, that he, he basically said he needs a new bill, a new resolution in order to initiate these hearings in the Judiciary Committee that he promised in August during the special session. He said it was he had every intention to hold these um, these hearings in his committee to compel testimony from from Byrd and from his accusers. And I, I, I don't think it's likely that those will happen. Um, but but Gloria Johnson says that this is this is another step she's taking um, to at least try to get there. And then and then we had a number of bills from Governor Lee's administration. Those are filed by the majority leaders of the House and Senate, uh, William Lamberth and Jack Johnson. Um, most of those have just been filed as as caption bills. Essentially, they're all very vague. Uh, there isn't much details in those bills about what the governor is trying to do. Um, one of those that is that is very clear, it is very plain, is that the governor is um, following up on what he said he would do last summer, which is put an end to the state law that requires him to proclaim every July 13th Nathan Bedford Forest Day. Again, that's just a smattering of legislation that was filed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we will continue to follow all the developments and keep you abreast of them, both on the podcast and in the written form. So please continue to uh, read our stories on our website and in the newspaper. This week on Grand Divisions, we have with us Department of Education Commissioner Penny Schwinn. Thanks for coming on, Commissioner. Thanks for having me. And I'm Jason Gonzalez, education reporter with the Tennessean. Um, so thank you for being here, Commissioner. Let's talk about your budget. Um, so you have $117 million in there for teacher pay raises. In past years, you know, that money, even though it's there for teachers and, and the raises, sometimes it doesn't always go to those teachers. So tell me, you know, how do you, as a state, talk to superintendents and ensure that they um, give teachers those pay raises? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's a couple of things that, that we're certainly wrestling with at the department. And the first and foremost is the 4% increase to the instructional component of the BEP is the largest single dollar investment that the state's ever made. So we are incredibly appreciative of the governor's proposed budget to support teachers and salaries. As we talk to superintendents, and I've had the great pleasure of doing that this week, we're trying to explore what those opportunities and options look like in each of our districts 
districts. And so certainly the law provides for flexibility, um, intentionally so. We also know that uh, the legislature was very clear last session when they passed some transparency bills around being able to know where those funds are allocated, that there is an intent that that goes to increasing teacher salaries. And so we expect over the course of the next couple of weeks to have really robust conversations about the intent of those funds and how we can ensure that districts are spending them in alignment with the intent of the legislature if they choose to pass the budget. So at this point, there's there's no clear steps that can be taken to to make sure that local districts are going to pass that along. You all, you all just plan to to talk more, to, to put the pressure on them. I mean, how, how could that even take place? Yeah, I think that's one of the things. So with the BEP, if it goes into the BEP, there's certainly encouragement about how those funds are intended, but there isn't a, a trigger that would allow the department to allocate specifically how those funds must be spent. Again, that's something that we are looking forward to speaking with our committees on um, over the next couple of weeks and really explore what their intent is with those funds and then certainly how we can ensure that they end up where they are supposed to end up. Um, there was the announcement of the mental health trust fund yes. uh, that that, that <laughs> Governor Lee um, spoke about at his state of the state. That is um, what was you know described as a two hundred fifty million dollar investment um, in next year's budget. Uh, certainly, you showed a lot of enthusiasm during the state of the state, <laughs> yes, I did, I did. Uh, as you did on a number of his announcements. You um, sort of led the way in some of those standing ovations there. Um, so when the governor announced that, um, you know we from speaking with, with people around the state, we understood that a lot of people, um, when they first heard it, took that to mean, oh, wow, there's going to be immediately $250 million that schools can start using to put uh, behavioral health professionals in schools. You know, the governor talked about um, the youth mental health crisis and and rising uh, youth suicide statistics and things like that, and sort of explained that an investment this large is necessary because of the, the dire circumstances that children are in, that teachers um, don't have the time, energy, training, resources to to devote to those students who need it. Um, but in recent days, you know, once everyone sort of started looking closer at the budget, asking questions, we realized that that money is, is intended to be an endowment, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and that really only a small amount will probably go towards um, that purpose, at least in the foreseeable future. Um, what what do you think about that? And and do you wish that there was more money uh, that was going to be accessible immediately? Well, I mean, I think so. Yes, I was quite enthusiastic at the state of the state, and that is because we had a governor who announced $640 million in his proposed budget for education. That's larger than Race to the Top, um, and it is certainly desperately needed in our schools, and we are just very grateful um, for his support. I think around the Mental Health Trust Fund, $250 million, that is out of one-time funds. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to explore and talk about in the coming weeks is that we don't have that in recurring funds. And so that's about $250 per student one time. We know that's probably not going to go very far to address the needs. However, we do have a trust fund that allows us the opportunity to do two important things. And the first is that we will have a budget to have a needs assessment for every district in the state. Right now, we have a lot of general statewide statistics, but I couldn't tell you definitively, here's what's needed in Clay County, here's what's needed in Hamilton County, and here's what's needed in Kingsport. They all have very different needs, and the first step is to determine what those needs are and what we need to do to be able to get them from where they are to where we think that they should be in terms of whole child supports. So this is a really important step for that. The trust fund allows for 
an annual annuity for us to be able to spend money on pilot programs, to be able to, for us to spend money on initial investments towards what those needs are. It doesn't preclude the legislature from having other conversations related to supports that might be needed in schools. But we do think for one-time funds, this is the responsible way to say, instead of putting it in the rainy day, um, which will help none of our students right now, he's making a very important point and putting a stake in the ground to say, we have to have this conversation around mental health for our students, and we have to start doing something very real about it. And so we're grateful for that opportunity. So you you wouldn't say that it would be uh, a good use of that money to to go ahead and start putting, um, I mean, even half of it towards schools immediately. Like, you, you think that, that that wouldn't be the right move fiscally? I think that with one-time funds, I think what we struggle with in education is we get this one-time infusion, and we saw this in Race to the Top, right, where there was all this money that came in, and then the money stopped, and everything just fell off the cliff. And so the things that we would like to see happen in perpetuity, there isn't the funds for that, or there aren't the funds for that necessarily. So these are all pulled out, again, out of one-time funds. They're not pulled out of recurring funds. What we're grateful for is that instead of putting it in the rainy day, instead of putting it in some other space, he's choosing to put these one-time funds towards mental health. It allows us to do pilot programs we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And again, we assume that there will be lots of robust conversations about the recurring funds that can certainly go to other uh, needs that are very, very um, critical for our public schools right now. So let's talk literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, the literacy rate in, in the state hasn't really, on national tests, changed very much since 2013. Right. Um, you know, the people are calling it a liter- literacy crisis. So you put money into the budget uh, or or into your budget to uh, address literacy. Mm-hmm. And there have been literacy programs in the past. How does yours differ from um, the ones in the past? And, and do you see that, um, how do you see that becoming successful? Yeah, so I think I, you bring up a really good point. Just over a third of our students are proficient in reading in third and fourth grade. And that number drops to 27%. Three out of four students in the state of Tennessee cannot proficiently read their high school textbooks. I agree, it is a crisis. And it is a crisis that is not the making of our public schools in the same way that I think we've been talking about. Our teachers are working really, really hard. Our principals are working really, really hard. And our superintendents are working really, really hard. What we haven't done as a state is a statewide scalable solution. I think some of the really strong work that happened, um, again, in Race to the Top in 2011 to 2013 demonstrated significant growth over a very short period of time. We are looking at those same practices, and it's what you see in a lot of the blogs and the articles recently around the science of reading, but it's evidence-based literacy instruction ensuring that we are teaching phonemic awareness and some of those strong foundational skills in alignment to and in conjunction with high quality instructional materials for our standards. We want to do that not just in smaller programs. We want to make sure we're doing that statewide. So there's statewide training for every single teacher, K through two, as well as every teacher who has students with disabilities, interventionist and principal. And I think learning the lessons from the earlier years when we had that big infusion of funding to have really incredibly strong Uh, implementation support over time. What we've heard from our educators is that it's great to do the training, but it's kind of a one and done. And I don't know what to do when I get back in my classroom. I'm not getting that ongoing support. With this funding, especially with the $11.25 million in recurring funding, it allows for continual implementation and coaching support. What we have heard is that has been incredibly important to our teachers. And I think when we look at over the last four to five years, that's something that we would carry through into this program. But what makes a difference, it's based in the science of reading. It is based in ensuring that our education preparation providers are all teaching literacy and how how to teach teachers how to teach children to read um, in a way that we know is proven for all students. And so we're really excited about that. 
you have 147 districts with tens of thousands of different uh, teachers in the, in the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you get them on board with this literacy push, especially when some of them have been trained in different ways um, and have different philosophies when it comes to reading? Yeah, you know, and I think that's going to be one of the important conversations. What we've been excited about is that we have a lot of early adopters and districts who are doing it right now. When we look at our districts who are growing the fastest in the state, we look at our districts that are high, the highest performing with all students. These are districts that have adopted evidence-based literacy practices. And so first and foremost, we have been working on a campaign that's a statewide campaign to highlight and elevate those districts, show what's been going on and show what it takes to get from point A to point B in terms of student achievement and and, uh, teacher practice. Um, What we also know is that there are a lot of districts who are eager to engage in this conversation, get the support and get the resources. They just haven't had the funding to do so. They haven't had the structure and infrastructure in place to be able to take advantage of that. This offers them that. Certainly, we know that there are going to be a handful of districts and some teachers who have been trained in other practices um, and other strategies, and that's part of the change management process. However, I think one of our uh, public officials said it um, better than I ever will, and she said, if we know what works for all kids, then why would we do anything else? And what we've seen is over the last 40 to 50 years, the research is clear that evidence-based literacy instruction is the most effective instruction for all students. And when we're in a space where only a third of our students are reading on grade level, we have have to take a really strong stand on saying it is critical that we do what works because if it was your child, you would want the teacher teaching in a way that teaches your child to read. Every child deserves that opportunity. And so we are very grateful for such a significant infusion of resources um, for our public schools. Okay, so let's talk some more about teacher training for a second. So mm-hmm. the governor, if, if I understand correctly, set aside additional funding in this budget for uh, increased teacher training and resources, uh, preparation for new tre- teachers, training for veteran teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about why that money was needed. What is the current? What are the current challenges? I know you mentioned, um, you know, teachers go to these trainings and they get back to the classroom and there's not that ongoing support. Uh, what are some other um, challenges that teachers have been facing in Tennessee with regards to? Um, having the tools they need to to teach kids and learn uh, what you know, like what the updated um, mm-hmm. teaching systems are, have they not been getting the the training that they need in recent years? Yeah, so I think with a state as diverse as Tennessee, the number, the size of districts, the types of districts, we have rural and urban and suburban, I think I, I wouldn't make a blanket statement about all teachers. But what I would say is that we had the highest uh, response rate of the educator survey last year. And what was very clear in their response was that they did not have the instructional materials they needed to teach their children every single day. The vast majority of our teachers are spending five or more hours just looking for resources to teach. They're going on sites like Teachers Pay Teachers teachers or Pinterest. Most of us know Pinterest because you plan birthday parties that way or baby showers or something like that. You don't think about Pinterest in planning lessons um, for mathematics or for reading. And so what we know to be true is that our teachers are spending five hours, in some cases, 12 or more hours every week. One of the things that we're excited about is the governor wants to invest $20 million in purchasing and supporting implementation for high quality instructional materials. The state board, with in conjunction with the department, just approved a an adoption list. And that is high-quality ELA, or English Language Arts materials, reading materials, for every single grade level. The problem is, 
ELA adoption is really expensive. You have to buy the textbooks and you also have to buy all the books that children read. Many of our districts can't afford that. With having this infusion of support, $10 million to purchase materials and $10 million for implementation or coaching for teachers, that is one major step forward to say, we believe every child deserves high quality materials in front of them and every teacher deserves those materials to teach with. This will get those materials in the classroom and save teachers hours and hours and hours that they can spend grading papers, giving students feedback, building relationships, or frankly, spending more time at home with their families because we know how much money our teachers are spending on materials themselves and how many hours they're spending at school just trying to keep up with things that we should be providing for them. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a, a lot of changes coming to the Achievement School District in mm -hmm. the next couple of years. Um, Jason may be able to speak more to this, but I understand. I think all the all of the schools currently in there, about 30, are going to return be returned to their their previous districts. You guys are going to hold on to that district. Not much will be happening with it for a period of time, and then bring in new struggling schools. Is that essentially what's going to happen in the coming years? Yeah, I think there's been some confusion on what, what the what the plan is sure. for the ASD. So um, first and foremost, the state is committed to the ASD as the highest form of intervention for our, our schools who have been persistently and consistently low performing. So that that is, a, um, that is a strong position of the state and we are not wavering there. That being said, we also know that we are heading on year eight going into year nine for some of the schools in the ASD. And to date, there haven't been exit procedures. Um, we can continue to kind of kick the can down the road or we can do something about it. And for and, many, there yeah. Hasn't been improvement, correct? That's correct. Or at least not to the degree you all expected. Yeah, so we have a range of performance in those schools. I think we have schools that are doing exceptionally well and showing growth. Um, and then we have schools that are continuing to struggle. Turnaround is really, really hard to do well. And so what we wanted to do is take a step back and look at the number of research reports that have come out on the ASD. I um, mean, most of them have said it's the ASD is very large. Um, it grew very quickly, very fast. I think we saw the same thing with the innovation zones and the I zones where um, high performance grew too fast. And and then you start to see a little bit of a plateau. What we're looking to do for the ASD is to say we have a number of charter schools, um, just about 30 charter schools in the ASD, Again, range in performance. I mean, we want to make sure that there's a pathway for a long-term solution for those schools. Right now, there isn't. Um, it's 10 years, and then again, you kind of fall off the cliff, and you just get returned back to your district in whatever way um, is decided. We think that for our high-performing charters and our moderately-performing charters, there needs to be a pathway for a long-term solution um, for them. And so what we are bringing about and getting feedback on and continuing to get feedback on is that those schools would have the opportunity over the next two years to apply back to their home district that would come in conjunction with an MOU from the state. So it is not a scenario where they would apply and then go back and kind of be left on their own. We would say in order to release them from the ASD, the receiving district would have to meet conditions that would allow those schools to continue to thrive in the context to which they were successful in the ASD. Should that not be an agreement that the charter school and the district can come to, those schools would then have the opportunity to apply directly to the new charter commission because that would be up and running by that time. Our assumption is that in one of those cases, the schools and most importantly, the students themselves will be protected and they will be able to have consistency. What the state is saying, though, is that our commitment is that students, either if they are going to stay in their schools or go back to a district, go back to the districts, those students deserve to be in an equally high performing seat or a higher performing seat. So our commitment is to ensuring every child has access to the best possible education. I mean, that is something that we're thinking very critically about as we look at what that transition may be. And then when we look at what the next phase of the ASD is, because certainly we're excited about the potential and opportunities to continue to serve uh, communities that, as we have been. So the governor is um, calling for an additional $25 million That's right. for the ASD. 
university. How is that money going to be used next year? Yeah, so I think um, there's a couple of things. So uh, right now the state gets $20 million in priority school funds from the federal government. We have 90 priority schools. That's the bottom 5%. And then a handful of those are in the ASD. But if you think about $20 million um, and schools that have been persistently low performing over time, it doesn't actually get you that far. So we're pretty excited about having the additional $25 million if that's approved by the legislature for the ASD. What that would look like next year, um, as we're still thinking about the next phase and iteration of the ASD, is it would look like additional supports for existing charter schools. Right now, they pay an authorizer fee out of their base, um, which comes out, again, just kind of lowers that funding. We would be able to forgive that, that authorizer fee so that they could keep more money closer to students. We'll be able to give them more funds for special education services because we know that's been a challenge. And most importantly, I, mean, I think, and this goes with the governor's uh, charter school facilities fund, 12 million one time, 12 million recurring, we'll be able to start to have more security in terms of the facilities that those schools are in. Right now, there isn't the security. Those are facilities owned by local districts that the charter schools are able to rent out. So you can imagine there are some challenges there. We want to make sure that these facilities are in really good shape, they are taken care of, and that there's some permanency for those students. So those are a few of the things that we're thinking about for that next round. Um, we also know that one of the things that has been most impactful for school turnaround nationally is having locally grown talent. Um, and we don't want to wait um, to be able to access and identify who those key folks are. And so what we want to do is to be able to say in our local communities, who are those future principals, assistant principals, teachers, and leaders that we can start to grow and cultivate now through really strong professional development cohorts and networking so that as we develop the ASD more, as we potentially bring in more schools as we want to support the existing charter schools, we have a cohort or a group of folks that they can choose from that have gotten that very specific and strategic training related to school turnaround, which is a very different context than a traditional school um, or a traditional neighborhood school. So a few years down the road, could you see there being more than 30 ASDs when you all sort of revamp who's going to be in it? You know, I don't know what that would be. Um, I think that we're really, we are taking a very close look at the research and the research does say that small clusters of schools get stronger results. I think we see that in classrooms. We see that certainly um, in school turnaround. And so if anything, we're really thinking about how we would cluster groups of schools together, um, again, to maximize growth and outcomes for students who are in those seats. As you look forward to this, uh, how is this going to look? Is this going to look the same as it has been in, in the past, which the philosophy has been to take over the school and hand it over to a charter school? Do you envision that being the same sort of method in the future? Um, I don't know. I think what we did learn in relation to that strategy and kind of the portfolio model is that as a department, um, and just to give context, we have four people in the department who oversee school turnaround. It is it's a pretty, pretty lean staff. So to then have those people oversee 30 different and essentially completely individual organizations, the structure of that is very, very challenging. It's 30 completely independent charter schools. And so I, I would not, um, I probably wouldn't presume that it would be the same structure. I think we're looking very closely at what's worked in other places across the country. Um, I do think that what we are committed to are things like ensuring that every single school in the ASD has high quality materials. Every single classroom is staffed by a highly qualified teacher, that we make sure that there are whole child supports built into every single school, and that every single classroom, not just has a highly qualified teacher, but a principal who's able to support that teacher and wraparound services for students because we know that there are traditionally more things that are needed outside of the base um, academic curriculum. 
So moving back to, you know, something we mentioned, uh, BEP, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are plenty of ongoing conversations around it, including um, that it is uh, needs to be revamped, that it's mm-hmm. outdated. Uh, do you envision Governor uh, Lee working to revamp or come up with a different funding formula in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really active conversation, and I know it's 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 quite the uh, provocative one. Everyone everyone has a very strong feeling about the BEP. I would say, given that we are currently um, exploring and in, in litigation with two of our districts, um, I, I probably wouldn't comment too much on the BEP. What I will say is that if you go into classrooms in our public schools across the state, in any part of the state, what you will see are incredibly hardworking teachers. You will see principals who are working from sunup to sundown to support those educators, and you see superintendents and district officials who will do anything possible to support their children. And so I think from the position of this governor and the position certainly of the department is our role, responsibility, and commitment is to support our educators, our principals, and our districts to the best extent possible so they can do the really, really hard, important work of educating our kids. And we've got just about 975,000 students across the state who deserve to have the best possible education. I'm very excited about the governor's budget because I think what it does is it makes a very clear statement that we are confident in our public schools and we are investing in our public schools. And there are 648 million reasons why um, I think he has shown that commitment. So um, that cheering that you saw on uh, Monday is certainly uh, for that reason, because I've got uh, two of those kiddos in our public schools um, next year. And uh, I'm very proud to be be one of the one of those parents. Let's talk about the ESA program really quickly. Um, We're about out of time here. Um, I think, you know, there's there's obviously lots of Questions, confusion, whatever. But one issue, maybe more recently, that has been, um, you know, there's been a lot of uncertainty over is is the question of whether families receiving um, education education savings account money, which for listeners, uh, you understand that that is essentially a school voucher program. Um, for, for families receiving that money, will it be taxed? And there have been conflicting answers. Um, since last fall, sort of sometimes saying yes, sometimes saying no, sometimes saying. Maybe it will be if there's money left over at the end of the year that the families didn't spend. So could you just clarify at this point what what the answer to that question is? Sure. So I think that the intent of the legislation was that they would not be taxable. Um, And on top of that, we expect that the majority of the funds for any ESA money allocated to a family would be spent on scholarship dollars. So essentially money going to tuition, um, regular books and and services that would not not be taxable. Um, There may be some cases where if there is money left over and there is enough money left over that the state would need to issue a 1099. Um, But that those would be kind of few and far between, and it would have to be on a student-by-student basis. I certainly couldn't speak to um, whether or not that would be taxable for that family. That would just be, again, we expect the majority of the money would go towards scholarship. That would not be taxable in the case that there was additional funding and that was spent on other activities. Potentially, we would issue 1099s for that. And you all currently do that for the um, IEA program for students with disabilities. You you all issue 1099s in those cases? Um, Yes. So it's it's the same principle. Um, If it is used for areas that would not be covered, um, then we would issue 1099s in those cases. Okay. Uh, well, we are we are out of time. We are um, 
grateful that you decided to come on and talk with us. Thank uh, is you. there any anything else you want to add at the end here? You know, the only thing I so yes, <laughs> the only thing I would add, um, we um, like I said, I've got two kids in public schools here in Tennessee, and we just had a baby, so we um, have an almost three month old at home. Yeah, and congratulations! Thank you. Yes, um, surprise, uh, but um, and he is he is a Tennessee and a very he is a very proud Tennessee and will continue to be a proud Tennessee. But um, when I was speaking with some of our district folks earlier in the week. Um, the one thing that I will say that has been um, very calming and what is a very, very busy time in our state is that I know that my son will attend public schools here in Tennessee. I'm very proud that he will do so. And the thing that I would say to every single person out there who's thinking about our schools, what is possible and why this governor wants to invest so much in them is because parents can feel confident that when they send their children to our schools, they have teachers who care about them and love them, will educate them at a high level, principals who are there to ensure that our children are safe and super who will do anything possible uh, to provide the best quality education. As one of those parents, the most calming thing about having a new baby is to know that he's going to be in one of those schools. And so we are very encouraged by this budget. I am, I think, borderline ecstatic by this budget um, and just and very, very hopeful um, about the conversations that are to come with our, um, our public official partners. So appreciate the time and appreciate the support for our schools. Thanks, Commissioner. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And now for this week's Notebook Dump. Nashville and Memphis last week filed a lawsuit against a state arguing that the state's education savings account passed last year in the legislature are unconstitutional and that the two local governments should have been allowed to provide a local approval. They're asking for a judge to halt the ESA program, which is supposed to start this fall. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is set to return to Nashville on February 18th for a fundraiser for U.S. Senate Republican candidate Bill Haggerty. This will be the latest high-profile attendee stumping for Haggerty on the campaign trail. He previously had Donald Trump Jr. in Gallatin. 35 major corporations, including Amazon, Dell, and Nissan, along with 107 small businesses in Tennessee, are saying that recent and expected laws uh, that are negatively impacting the LGBTQ community are hurting their employee recruitment efforts, as well as tourism in the state, and are calling on the governor and the legislature to stop pursuing such measures. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every week on Tuesdays. Uh, please continue to rate us. You can also find us on, uh, on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. And uh, this podcast is always produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. I'm Joel Liebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week. Music.